Well, at the Angel Spring Training Facility recently, one of the players who regularly attends chapel and also happens to be Catholic shared the following story with me. The story goes that John Smith was the only Protestant to move into a large Irish Catholic neighborhood. And on the first day of Lent, John was outside grilling a big juicy steak on his grill. Meanwhile, all of his neighbors were eating cold tuna fish for supper, and this went on each Friday during Lent. So on the last Friday of Lent, the neighborhood men got together and decided something had to be done about John. He was tempting them to eat meat each Friday, and they couldn't take it anymore. So they decided to try to convert him to be Catholic. So they went over his house, they talked to him for several hours. Finally, he relented, and he decided that he would go ahead and become a Catholic. So they took him to church. The priest sprinkled some water over him and said, You were born a Baptist, you were raised a Baptist, and now you're a Catholic. And the men were relieved because their biggest Lenten temptation was now resolved. Well, a year went by, and sure enough, the Lent season rolls around. The first Friday of Lent came, and and just at supper time, when the neighborhood was sitting down eating their cold tuna fish dinners again, came the wafting smell of steak cooking on a grill. The neighborhood men couldn't believe what was going on, so they called each other, they got together, they went over to John's house, and they called each other and decided they had to go over and see if John forgot today was the first day of Lent. As they got there, the group arrived, and just as they walked in the backyard, they saw John standing over his grill with some water, and he was sprinkling over his grill. He said, you were born a cow, you were raised a cow, and now you're a fish. I love that story. And and the reason I love the story is it's a reminder that we may call something whatever we wish, but that's not what makes it what it is. You know, for example, a group of folks can gather together and call themselves a church, but that doesn't mean that it's true. You know, or someone may say that he or she is in love, but that doesn't mean it's love as defined by God. You know, we can call things whatever we want, but it doesn't necessarily change what is true. We can change things on the outside or make it appear externally that we're something that on the inside that we're not. You know, love is a universal need of all humanity, and everyone wants to be loved. But the question that you have to ask yourself is, what is love? You know, according to the Bible, love is the supreme expression of God's personhood, and it flows out of His goodness. It affects all His other attributes. In fact, the Bible does not say that God is holiness or God is power, but God is love. You know, God's heart overflows with His supernatural and unconditional love for each one of us. And the psalmist proclaims, the Lord is good, his unfailing love continues forever. You know, God's love is the only reason that we exist. It's the why of his creation, whereas his power is the how. You know, love demands an object. Therefore, you and I were created by him because of his great love for each of us. Love flows from God as a pure river of grace and mercy, without distracting in any way from his holiness and righteousness. That's why I believe that love must be the perpetual pursuit of the church. Grace and mercy, coupled with truth and righteousness, is what God's people and also what His church should reflect to the world around us. God's love is grace and His mercy, coupled with truth and righteousness. They're not mutually exclusive. They go hand in hand. They go in harmony with one another. Grace and truth. The Bible says that when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, we beheld His grace and His truth as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace 
and full of truth. So with that in mind, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where you'll find the greatest exposition on the subject of love that has ever been written. In 1 Corinthians 13, starting with verse 1, we read these words. Paul writes to the church at Corinth, inspired by the Spirit of God. He says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor and I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. He says, love is patient, love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong that's been suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. God's love never fails. 1 Corinthians 13 is composed of three paragraphs in Greek with each paragraph revealing something different about God's love. For example, in the first three verses, which we saw in depth the last time we were together, it shows that God's love is necessary for all that we say and do. We learned that according to God, His math program basically goes like this. Anything, no matter how great it is, minus love equals nothing. Anything minus love is nothing in God's sight. In verses 4 through 7, this second paragraph, which we're going to focus on today, shows clearly that God's love is radically different from natural human behavior. There is nothing like God's love. As you'll see as we go through it, verse by verse, there is nothing like God's love. And it is radically different than anything else that you and I will ever see or experience. And the last paragraph is verses 8 through 13. It reveals God's love is greater than spiritual gifts and even greater than faith and hope. And so if we look at that, we're just going to focus our attention on verses 4 through 7. It's important to note the word love is used only twice in this paragraph, though it may appear three or four times in English translations. Love appears before the words patient and kind. In each case, a definite article appears prior to that. So technically, literally, what you would be reading is this. The love of God is patient. The love of God is kind. The love is patient. The love is kind. And it specifically calls it to our attention because the point is is that God's love is summarized in those two qualities, patience and kindness, and everything else that's described and the qualities that we'll see after that, uh, after that starting with God's love is basically how it interacts, our love will interact with one another. The text tells us what God's love is not. There are eight negatives, there are two positives, and if you've got your bulletins, you'll see we've got an outline that's prepared in that particular form. So if you want to take notes, you know, we're going to find there are two positives and then eight negatives. A lot of times, it's important that we learn what something is by learning what something is not. And that's specifically what we're going to have called to our attention in this particular passage. So the first two positive descriptions, patience and kindness, show how God's love is different from natural human behavior in the way it interacts with other people. And the eight negatives reveal that God's love does not act with selfish attitudes. So the question as we go through this that I ask myself, that I will ask you and challenge you is this. Are you, do you believe that you're a loving person? 
Do you demonstrate God's love to those around you? It's kind of a self-examination where we'll measure ourselves against an objective standard. I mean, many of us think we're good drivers. We think that we drive within the speed limit. You know, but when it's posted, usually someone in your car has been put there providentially by God to remind you, you know, of the fact that, you know, it says this and you're not doing that. And, and, and God has given us a grandson now to, to continue the, the tradition uh, that, that's been in our family for centuries now, I guess. But the reality is some of us think, man, you know what? I'm a great driver. I, I was going, you know, I was going with the flow of traffic. Oh, hey, wait a minute. Southern California now, any one of us at any time could be pulled over. Don't use that one. I mean, there's, a, there's an objective standard that's measured on the freeway. It says speed limit. I, I wish you said not to exceed something. You know, then we'd all be okay. But there's a speed limit and there's an objective measure. We measure ourselves against it. Same is true in the Word of God. God's truth, there's a measurement that's there. We measure ourselves against what God says. So if I'm going to say and claim I'm a loving person, then I should be able to measure myself against what God says is true of a loving person. With that being said, let's see how we measure ourselves against the objective standard that's presented in this particular text. The first thing that we learn is this. The two positive qualities, number one, love is patient. Love is patient. If there's one quality above all others which people seem to have trouble with, it's patience, or some translations render it long-suffering. Patience or long-suffering. The Greek word means taking a long time to boil. Some of us are crockpots and others are microwaves, man. I mean, that'd probably be the best way to summarize this. You know, it's like instantaneous versus there are other people that take a long time to boil. God's love is patient. If we love the way that God loves, it takes us a long time to boil. God has never said to be patient towards things. The love that we see here that is patient has to do with the fact that God is patient towards people. Isn't that great? God doesn't have to be patient toward things. You know why? He got all things under control. He doesn't have to be patient towards things. He doesn't have to, he's not sitting around the, in, you know, in, in the heavenlies saying, you know what, man, I wish Pluto would stay in orbit. It just is out of control, you know. I turn my back and Pluto's trying to go somewhere else. You know, and he doesn't do that because he's in absolute total control of everything. Where it's talking about love is patient, it refers to the fact that God's love is patient towards people. How many of you struggle with being patient towards people? Whoa, look at that. That's scary thinking you're sitting next to somebody, you know. Now it's like you almost want to freeze the rest of the whole morning, don't you? It's like, I hope this doesn't annoy the impatient person sitting next to me. But it's true, though. I mean, it's just like the, the, the whole thing of, you know what, the, the, the world would be great if there were no people. You ever, get, you ever have to work on a day where everybody else ha- isn't working, you know, on a holiday and you're driving down the freeway going, now this is what they had in mind for our freeway system. This is the way it's supposed to be. This is great. Nobody else but me. It's my own road. Watch this. I'm going to serpentine. This is great. You know, it's great. You know, we don't have to be patient. You know, being patient towards people. I think there's an irony of being impatient with... How many of you are impatient with impatient people? 
Have you ever stopped to think of the irony of that for a second? You know, they, they just drive me crazy. Why can't they be as patient as me? Well, I think they are, sir. <laughs> you know, there's just an irony to being impatient with impatient people. There's something wrong there. And so if you've struggled with this, and, and we make excuses, and, 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 and I often hear people that will say things like, you know, I've always been impatient. So? If any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away, all things become new. I'm just going to lay it out very simple, and that's this. Stop making excuses for sinful behavior. I need, to make, I need to stop making excuses for my own sinful behavior before God because I'm saying that God's a liar. I've always been impatient. I've been impatient my whole life. Well, so when you came to faith in Christ, old things pass away, all things become new. The fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, patience. God's love poured out through us, through His Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 5, indicates that you and I have the capacity now to love patiently as God loves us. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says that we are to be patient with all. And what's fascinating to me is that, you know, I'm always looking for, wonder what all means. There's got to be something. It's like, here, let me just help you all. All means all, everyone, no exceptions, everybody, especially the one who drives you crazy the most. That's what all means. Since God's love and His Spirit is poured out within us, as I said in Romans chapter 5, we now have the capacity to love as God loves. God is slow to anger. He is patient. God is patient in that He wishes that none would perish, but all to come to everlasting life. God is patient. And so... Considering that, I want to give you a couple examples of the patience of God as He is patient towards people. 1 Peter 3.20 says that, Who formerly were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through the water. And it's referring back to Genesis chapter 6. The book of Genesis is the beginning book of the Bible. The book at Genesis means beginning. So Genesis chapter 6 is the book of beginnings from the standpoint of God's creation and His revelation to man. And in Genesis chapter 6, here is an example of the patience, the long-suffering of our God. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 through 8, we read this. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made him. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The word favor is grace. Unmerited grace, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That God and His patience, if you'll notice when you go back to verse 3, it says, The Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. And so it's important that we recognize that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He told people around him that they needed to repent of their sin and turn to God for forgiveness. As he built the ark for, imagine this, for 120 years, 
all that came across his path, watching him build it, making fun of him, mocking him, ridiculing him because he was doing something that God instructed him to do. He preached righteousness, doing what is right before God. And what is right before God? That all mankind should repent and turn from sin and turn to God and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sin. For 120 years, Noah preached the gospel. And for 120 years, God withheld his judgment. Why? Because God is patient. It takes a long time for God to boil. And the message was very clear. That God is patient. That God's love is patient. And as patient as God is, when we look at this account in Genesis, he's saying to you and I, we need to be equally patient with one another taking a long time to boil. You know, long-suffering doesn't mean, or patience doesn't mean that judgment is ignored or man's sin is overlooked. It's a word referring to time. God gives us time to reconsider and repent because He is patient. And it's important that we recognize, even as we are here today, we've got to examine ourselves to see whether or not there are things in our life that are wrong before God. To examine ourselves and say, God, is there anything in my life that's not pleasing to you? Because see what happens oftentimes, and I've seen this, experienced this in my own life and in the lives of many that I've had an opportunity to counsel, and that is this. There are times in our life where we choose to do what's wrong before God, and there doesn't seem to be any consequence for those actions. And we continue to be deceived that what we're doing is okay, And all I'm here to share with you is this, that the only reason you and I aren't judged immediately by God for wrong decisions is because God is patient. He is long-suffering. He is slow to boil. He gives us time to be convicted by the Spirit of God. If you have come to know Christ as your Savior and the Spirit of God lives within you, the Spirit of God convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment. He warns us that the choices that we're making are wrong before God and He gives us time to confess our sin. If, and, and, and if we confess our sin, we know that God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And there's no question in my life at this point or in my mind that there are those who are here today or listening to this message who know the truth that only God may know. There are things in your life today that are wrong before God. And the only reason that you haven't paid a price to date is because God is patiently waiting for you to repent. He is patiently waiting for you to turn from sin and turn back to God. See, we need to recognize God's word is truth. Galatians 6, 7 says, Don't be deceived. Don't kid yourself. Stop fooling yourself that what you're doing is right before God because there's no immediate uh, evident consequence to it. Examine it against the objective standard of God's Word, and when it doesn't measure up, God says, you know what? Confess your sin, and I'm faithful to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. All I can say to you is I thank God that He gave me opportunities throughout my Christian life to confess sin before He had to step in publicly and discipline me for it. Praise God for His mercy. Praise God for His love that is patient and long-suffering. Consider when God proclaimed his name to Moses. If you're still in the Old Testament, turn ahead to a book, the book of Exodus, chapter 34. 
And consider as he proclaims his name to Moses, the names that he gives of himself. When he proclaimed his name to Moses in Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7, he referred to his character and his attributes as reflecting patience and long suffering, among other qualities. In Exodus 34, verse 5, and the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with Moses as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger. There's our word long suffering, our word patient. He's a patient and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for a thousand, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will be by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the children to the third and the fourth generations. Notice that one of the qualities that we see here of his character is that he is long-suffering or patient. In Numbers 14, verses 18 and 19, we read, The Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but He by no means clears the guilty. It's important as we read these that we recognize the balance that we see taking place, and that is this, while God certainly is patient, God is also holy and just. And so while God waits for you and I to repent, He is delaying judgment, but judgment will come one day. I like to tell guys this, payday one day. You will pay the price. And sin will take you further than you wanted to go. Sin will keep you longer than you wanted to stay. And sin will cost you more than you ever thought you were willing to pay. Don't be deceived. Our enemy is a liar from the pit of hell. But our God is a God of truth. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes unto the Father but through me. He said, that's truth. God's word is truth. Sanctify us. Jesus prayed that, he would, that, we, that God the Father would sanctify or set apart his people, those who have come to faith in Christ by the word of God. Sanctify them by truth. Thy word is truth. God's word is truth. The Word of God is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It shines brightly on us exactly where we stand today and then points the way to where God wants us to go in the future. If the Word of God is shining on you today and it's revealing to you the darkness that's in your life or in your heart, then God says He patiently waits for you to repent. When Alexander the Great would go into a city to destroy it, We're told historically that what he would do is he would take a lantern or he would take a torch and he would put a light up on a hill. And the message to the city that they were about to invade is a very simple one and that is this. As long as the light is lit, all who come to me will be spared. But when the light is extinguished, then there is no hope. I can't help but draw a parallel to the truth of the word of God that says, you know what, Jesus Christ is a light unto the world. God's people are a light into the world. We're light and we're salt. The purpose of us being here is to bring glory to God by revealing God's truth to the world around us. We are ambassadors for Jesus Christ left here on earth with a message and the message is this. Jesus preached it. John the Baptist preached it. Every apostle after preached it and that was this. The message is simple. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn from sin. Turn to God. Trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. Those who rejected the offer of amnesty were judged by Alexander the Great. 
how much more so will mankind be judged by God who sent the light into the world The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness hated the light because the deeds of man were evil, and God revealed the hearts of men so that we would know what God knows about us. None of us are righteous. No, not one. Each of us have gone astray. Each of us have sinned before God. How do you take advantage of God's amnesty program, the light that's lit? Very simple. You recognize first what God says is true, that you know what, I'm not perfect. On my best day, I fall short of the standard of God's perfection. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We must recognize that. We must repent, meaning we turn from sin. We turn to God. We humble ourselves. We throw ourselves upon God's mercy at the cross where Jesus Christ came to give his life as a ransom for many. As he shed his blood and later died to be raised again from above, the Bible says that whosoever believes upon him shall be saved. That we recognize our sin, we turn and we repent from sin, we respond to the finished work of Christ that Jesus did it all, all to him I owe. He died on the cross, he rose from the dead, and I receive him personally as my Lord and my Savior. That's God's amnesty program available to all who will come. For God so loved the world that whosoever believes in His Son, Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. The question that has to be asked at this point is a simple one. And that is this. Have you believed in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? You know, the story that I told to start off is a funny story, but it's sad in a lot of ways because we live in a world today that people think if they do the external things that somehow they'll be right with God. You know, you were born a cow, raised a cow, hey, bang, now you're a fish. You know, but the reality is is that God knows our hearts. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we shall be saved. It's with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with his lips he confesses unto salvation. The question is a very simple one. Have you personally, nobody else around, but between you and God, have you come to repent of your sin and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin? Folks, don't ever trust in a church. Trust in Christ. You will never get to heaven by being in church. You only get to heaven by being in Christ. God is patient. Number two, back to 1 Corinthians 13, we learn also that God is kind. You know, that His love is kind. Love is patient. Love is kind. One of the most beautiful qualities of spiritual love is that of kindness. Kindness is the opposite of attack or harshness or insensitivity to human needs. Kindness wants to help and be a blessing and not add to another person's burdens or their hardship. God's love is patient. Long-suffering takes a long time to boil. And God's love is kind, wanting to do what's best for the other person. Unfortunately, at times, you know, we can be insensitive to the needs of others. Now, from what I've been told, this is especially true of some men. Amen, ladies? I don't know this for a fact, being the sensitive guy that I am. But I hear some of you guys, well, let me just share a story with you that I heard being in the construction industry, uh, as some of you know, for a number of years, there's all kinds of stories, and here's one that actually can be shared. And uh, (laughs) the story is told of three men who were working, they were welding and working on a high-rise building project, Steve, Bill, and Charlie. 
Steve falls off. He's killed instantly. As the ambulance takes the body away, Charlie says, man, someone should go tell his wife. Bill says, okay, I'm pretty good at that sensitive stuff, so I'll go do it. So two hours later, he comes back carrying a six-pack of Diet Coke. And Charlie says to Bill, man, Bill, where'd you get that? He says, well, Steve's wife gave it to me. He said, Steve's wife, that's unbelievable. You told the lady her husband was dead and she gave you a six-pack of Diet Coke? And Bill says, well, it didn't exactly happen that way. When she answered the door, I said to her, well, you must be Steve's widow. And, uh, and she said, no, I'm not a widow. And I said, you want to bet me a six-pack? Now, how's that for a sensitive guy? Huh? Fellas, he set the bar pretty high for us right there. You know, seriously, you know, when we think of kindness or sensitivity, when the word kind in the Bible is used, it's important to recognize it's used to mean it is something that is useful, serviceable, uh, it, it translates goodness or excellent or has some value to it. Uh, when referring to food, it's pretty interesting that when, when the word is referred to food in the Bible, it refers to something that is wholesome and that is good for us. It has a purpose. And so when you think about God's kindness, it's useful, it serves a purpose, it's good for us, and, you know, and it also tastes good. It's kind of like the way that, you know, if we're good to them. And the word kindness, for example, in Second Chronicles 10.7, we're told, if you are kind to these people and please them and speak good words to them, they will be your servants forever. The word translated kind is the common Hebrew word for good. And what it means is this, if you are good to them, if what you do for another person has a purpose and has a value and it is good for them, an excellent way to understand words is to go through and do a word study in your Bible. Take, you know, take a word like kindness and go through a concordance. You know, it's great that they've got the technology of, uh, of having you know, all, the, all the words of the Bible on you know, a CD-ROM that you can pop in your computer and pull up the word kindness or goodness and see how many references and what the general flavor is or overall feel. Nehemiah 9.17, for example, describes the character of God. It says, you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. Psalm 63, 3, your loving kindness is better than life. Psalm 138, 2, I will worship towards your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. You have magnified your word above all your name. You know, to be kind, to, to, to be kind, to be good to others. You know, Titus 3, verses 3 through 7, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. And it says his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So the real issue is this. Kindness responds as God will respond. You know, we like to say it today that, you know, the bracelet, what would Jesus do? If Jesus was in a similar circumstance and with similar people and with similar needs, you know, what would Jesus do? When you have a chance, study the, 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 the parable of the um, a Good Samaritan. As I was preparing this, I studied the passage and it, and it reflected what it meant to be kind to another in need. We're told that the Good Samaritan saw another person in need and stopped what he was doing and went out of his way to go over and meet the needs of that person. He bandaged them up. 
He put him on his own, his own uh, donkey and he took him into town and he took him to an inn and, and he gave the money, the innkeeper money and said, take care of him. He spent the night and he made sure that he was okay and then he left the next day to go about on his way but said, I'll come back again to make sure that everything's okay and if you had to spend more money than I just left you, I'll make it right with you and I'll do it. You know, to, to, to ask ourselves the question, you know, are you kind? Would you provide transportation for a person in need? A place to stay? Financial help? Groceries? Babysitting to give a weary mom or a weary mom and dad a break? Sending a note or a card to, of encouragement to, to another? Maybe forgiving a person's financial debt that's owed to you to help relieve a burden that they have in their life? A visit to the hospital? You know, the comfort of children... Last week we had friends who were here and their little girl was in the, in, the, um, in the children's program and she wasn't having a real good time. And she was crying and was a little upset and she came back and she saw Linda and she went and she sat next to Linda. And her dad called me during the week and said, I got to share this with you because it meant so much to him. And, she, and he said, you know, honey, why were you crying? And she said, I didn't want to be in there with the little kids. He goes, well, Why? And she said, because I wanted to be out in the living room with all the mommies and the daddies. And I thought, man, what a great, we're meeting in the living room. And I had somebody else called me and said, I brought my grandma to church first time. She's never really gone to church. She's not really interested in spiritual things. And I asked her, what did you think? And she said, you know what? It was like listening to a friend sit on the couch and share with me things that made a lot of sense to me. I said, man, you know what, that's what we need to be about. And it certainly is a reminder to me that, you know what, while I'm here to share the truth of the Word of God, I need to do it with love. To speak the truth in love. And I know there are times when things that are said sound harsh. But I don't want it to be because I make it sound harsh. I want it to be because you're struggling with doing what's right before God and you just don't like to hear the truth. But I'm telling you right now, God's truth will set you free. You know, I don't like hearing that I'm not patient from God. But you know what? Not my will be done, but His. Lord, if I'm impatient, forgive me because that's a sin. Because it doesn't reflect your character or the world around me. And man, I, you know, I'm wrong. And I need to ask your forgiveness. God's love is patient. God's love is kind. It has compassion for others who are in need and doing something about it. It takes action. You know, then and only then is God's love operating through us. I like what I came across recently in a book book by Bill Gates. He talks about how feel-good, politically correct teachings created a full generation of kids with no concept of reality and how this concept set them up for failure in the real world. Here's his advice. Take some notes. Number one, life is not fair. Get used to it. Number two, the world won't care about your self-esteem. The world will expect you actually to accomplish something before you feel good about yourself. Number two, you will not make 40000 a year right out of high school. You won't be vice president with a cell phone until you earn both. If you think your teacher is tough, hey, wait till you actually get a job and have a boss. <laughs> flipping burgers is not beneath your dignity. Your grandparents had a different word for burger flipping. They called it opportunity. If you mess up, it's not your parents' fault, so don't whine about your mistakes and learn from them. Before you were born, your parents weren't as boring as they are now. (laughs) They got that way from paying your bills, cleaning your clothes, listening to you talk about how cool you are, 
Hey! So before you save the rainforest from parasites of your parents' generation, try delousing the closet in your own room. Feeling a gender, gen, generation split taking place here. I've seen some of the high school guys, man. I think you can take them. Your school may have done away with winners and losers, but life has not. In some schools, they've abolished failing grades. They'll give you as many times as you want to get the right answer. This doesn't bear the slightest resemblance to anything in real life. Life is not divided into semesters. You don't get summers off. And very few employers are interested in helping you find yourself. So do that on your own time. (laughs) Television is not real life. In real life, people actually have to leave the coffee shop to go to their jobs. And finally, as it relates to our message today, be kind to nerds. Chances are you'll end up working for one. So be kind, be patient. All right, those are the two things that love is. Love, the love is patient, the love is kind. We're going to go through warp factor 17 to get through these next eight. Here we go. First, we learn, number one, that God's love is not jealous. The word jealous or envy or indignation comes from a Greek word found 34 times in the New Testament in its various forms. The root word means to seethe or to boil, which if you recall will be the opposite of patience. God's love is not jealous. When you have a chance this week, read Genesis chapter 37, the story of Joseph and his brothers. Note the pattern of sin as it relates to jealousy and envy. They saw his favored status with his father and with God. It stirred up emotions of anger. They seized, they boiled within. They became jealous over the fact that God had chosen him above them. And so as a result, they sold him into slavery. Acts 7-9 confirms that scenario where where we read this. The patriarchs becoming envious sold Joseph into slavery. Why did they sell him to slavery? Because they were jealous of what God had chosen to do in his life. And so the word envious is the same that we have here in 1 Corinthians 13, 4. God's love is not jealous. Love is not jealous. Are you a loving person? The question you have to ask, am I patient? Am I kind? Or am I jealous? Am I jealous of the blessings that I see God give in the life of others? How do you feel when somebody at work gets a promotion over you? How do you feel when somebody makes the team instead of you? How do you feel when somebody gets to play the game over you? How do you feel when somebody gets, you know, has business success or, you know, they receive some financial windfall, you know, over you? That emotion that you have, that seething, that boiling is called jealousy and it's a sin before God and it's wrong before God. And we've got to repent of that and turn to God. We're to weep with those who weep. We're to rejoice with those who rejoice. We're to praise God for the blessings of of Him in the life of others. We're, We're to praise God for it. We're not to be upset about it. We need to recognize and understand that that is not God's love. God's love doesn't compare one person to another. It does not envy nor feel jealous of the successes, abilities, appearance, or blessing of others. The question is, are you a jealous person? If you are, then God says, repent, and you will find mercy. And ask Him to pour His love out through you. 
that you can see God's blessing in another's life without comparing it to yourself. Number two, we see that God's love is not what? It not, does not brag, is not boastful. The New American Standard tells us that God's love doesn't brag, that love doesn't parade itself in front of others in order to impress or receive attention or strokes. This is the only place that that word is found in the Bible, and it means very simply that, you know what, that God's love, if you're a loving person, you don't go around bragging about things that really have no eternal significance or consequence. I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, to go around and boast about how much money you make. Think about it. You know, we boast about things that are temporal in nature. We boast about, you know, our jobs. We boast about our careers. We boast about our education. We boast about, you know, the money that we make, the car we drive, the homes we have, the material things that we've got. And you know what? And none of that has any eternal significance whatsoever. And the Word of God, the counsel to all of us is simply this. If you're going to boast about anything, boast about God. If you're going to boast in anyone, boast in Jesus Christ. Because I don't know if you've stopped to really think about it, and if you break it down in its simplest form, that's this. The only reason that you may have more money than someone else is because God has given you the ability to make it. Without God, you're nothing. Period. And so we've got to be very careful that we don't boast about things that have no eternal significance. You know, that's why when I'm dealing with athletes, it's always, look, you know what? Give God all the praise and glory because they know better than anybody. And I know when I was doing the chapel for Game 7 of the World Series with the Angels and we sat in that room together, there wasn't a guy in that room who believed that they should have been there because, you know what, they know everybody else tries just as hard as they do. They know every other team that's out there wants to win just as bad as they do. And the reality is this. There are times in our life where God is on, God's hand is on our shoulders and we cannot ignore it but to give Him all the praise and all the glory. There's a reason the angels came back and won in game six. There's a reason that they won in game seven. And my chapel message was something we had studied all year and that is this. You know, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. But at the end of the day, whatever He chooses to do, we're still going to trust Him because He's God and we're not. So go out and have fun because you know what? Who knows when we'll ever get to do this again. Have a good time. John Lackey walked in the room, a big kid, Texan kid, 22, 23 years old, walked in. He checked, what's up? Hey, brother, what's happening? I said, Lack, what's going on? Nothing. I said, that's good. Tim Salmon looked at him and said, hey, man, you know what? I figured this is our 178th game. So it's not like you're pitching game seven of the World Series. So just go out and just have fun, and we'll see where this all leads. You know what? And that's just it. You know, if we're going to boast in anything, let us boast in Jesus Christ. And him crucified. For without him, we're not even here today. Without him, as has been said, there's no Easter. There's no celebration. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that everything we believe is all in vain, we are to be most, most to be pitied. But because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, we have an opportunity to invite people to hear the truth of God's love for them. While yet they are sinners in rebellion against God, God is patiently waiting before he steps in and finally judges them the other side of eternity. We have an opportunity. We need to take advantage of it. Do not boast. Love is not arrogant. Number three, some translations say love is not puffed up. It doesn't brag, let another man praise you and not your own mouth, the stranger and not your own lips. Proverbs 27, 2. 
Don't go around being arrogant. An example of arrogance is found in this illustration by Jesus in Luke 18, 10 through 14. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as even raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be abased, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Arrogance manifests a superior attitude towards others. As I just mentioned, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. You know what? There's none of us any better than anybody else. We all come to the cross equally guilty before God and we praise him for his forgiveness. There is no room at God's house for anyone who's arrogant and haughty toward those around us. When I was blowing up a balloon... It reminded me of this because the word puffed up means to blow up a balloon and it's kind of like just filled with a bunch of hot air. You know, when the balloon let go and it started shooting all around the room, it reminds me of a whole bunch of trash-talking guys that I know that play, you know, in sports or even people that like to go around bragging about themselves, man. They're just all over the place. You know, just kind of flying all over. But at the end of all of it, when the air's finally out, it just, it just laying right there on the ground. Several years ago, almost 20 years ago, I'll never forget, I, I was doing a chapel for the, the Rams at that time who actually were here in this city. And, um, and, and uh, I, was, I was getting in an elevator and I was going upstairs and right before I, the elevator doors closed, I saw a hand stop it and in walked Reggie Jackson who happened to be playing for the Angels at the time and was invited to come. It was September, October game. The Angels were still playing. And so he came and we went upstairs and he asked what I was doing and you know, I told him, you know, I'm going to do chapel. And he came and he sat in the front row. But as he walked in the room, he saw a guy by the name of Jimmy Ray who was an All-American at Michigan and happened to be the Rams quarterback coach. And he yelled across the room. He said, hey, 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 you, you, didn't you used to be Jimmy Ray? And Jimmy never missed a beat, man. He looked over and said, yeah, and one day you'll used to be Reggie Jackson. <laughs> it was beautiful. So, and it was like, let us pray. <laughs> you know, but it reminded me, you know, when I was a kid growing up, I saw Muhammad Ali running around. I'm the greatest. I am the greatest. That's all I saw, man, all the time. Like, I'm the greatest, you know. And, and I remember a story that was told when he got on an airplane. He was on a 747. He was traveling somewhere. He got on the plane and uh, sat down. The, steward, uh, the flight attendant uh, came over and said to him, you know, Mr. Ali, you need to put on your seatbelt. And he said, I'm the greatest. I'm Superman. I don't need no seatbelt. And she came back again. It wasn't on. She said, really, i got to ask you. I'm Superman. I don't need no seatbelt. And she finally looked at him and said, you know what? And Superman don't need an airplane either. So put on your seatbelt. You want to fly next to us? That's fine. But until you can, put on your seatbelt. Not all puffed up. Number four, love is not rude. It says, does not act unbecomingly. God's love is not rude. In, in a very simple term, it has to do with scheme or schematic. It means that we don't act ourselves in an unseemly manner. You know, God's love is not rude. And all you have to do is ask yourself the question, am I rude? Well, how do you know? Well, ask people. 
I mean, seriously, if you really want to know, I mean, I, give me, here's an example of rudeness, you know. If, you know, if your, your wife's talking to you, and, and fellas, and, and you got the, the game on the background, you got the sports section in your face, and she's trying to talk to you, and you're not looking at her, acknowledging her, that's rude. Right, ladies? Can I hear an amen, sister? Preach it, brother. See, now I got your attention. All these sports, illustrated, uh, sports illustrations, you're like, oh, man, what did he talk about? Shopping or something I can re- relate to in some way? Well, here you go. You know, if you got a rude husband, he's not paying attention to you. Right? See, God's love's not rude. God's love pays attention to the needs of others, even when it's not convenient ourselves. And we got to ask the question, you know, you come home, you're busy, you know, and it's kind of like your kids got a million questions, they want to talk to you, they want to play with you, they want to roll around, whatever it is. You got to decide if I'm going to give my attention to them. See, God's love would do that because God's love's not rude. Okay? God's love, ooh, and it ties together with this, does not seek its own. See, God's love is not selfish. It's not selfish. It doesn't seek its own. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind or humility of mind, let each of you esteem one another, value one another more than yourself. Philippians chapter 2. Love doesn't seek its own. Love is not selfish. Are you a selfish person? And it goes to what I'm talking about. You know, we've got to ask some very difficult questions at times. The reason I believe the angels were so successful is they were not selfish people, but they, pl- they, they played together as a team. They, they, they considered the other person more important than themselves, and that's why they were successful. And we need to recognize as God's people, you know what? We need to consider others more important than ourselves. There are times in our life where God's love means that we will be greatly inconvenienced to do what is right for another. I'll never forget, many years ago, I had a friend who, who their marriage was going through a difficult time. His wife was threatening to leave him. She met another guy that she thought she was in love with. And she was never interested in talking to me, except one night he called and said, would you be interested in meeting with my wife tonight because she wants to meet and talk? It was game six of the Lakers-Boston Celtics championship finals. I was wondering, are we really that close of friends? You know, will she really listen? And I was like, hey. It was like one of those God slaps. Hey, get, would you get down there? And so we went and we met. And God broke her heart. And she repented of her sin. And she went back to her husband. And they're doing great today. And I don't take credit for that because that's all God. I, I couldn't have saved their marriage for, for anything. But I knew that I needed to be available to try to share with her the truth of what God's word has to say. Don't be deceived. God's not mock. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. You know, The grass isn't greener on the other side. You, you, know, you need a good slap upside your head. And we need to focus on what's right before God. And, and, you know, and I praise God. She repented of her sin. And they're doing great today. Another couple, the same type of thing. My wife and I went walking. As you know, we spend a lot of time at In-N-Out Burger. And uh, my wife doesn't, but I do. And I saw another couple who went through a similar thing. 
And I walked in, and their faces lit up the room, man, when they saw me walk in. And that doesn't happen very often, so that's, a, that's always a good thing. And, uh, and they had two children that were sitting there. At the time that they were going through a similar problem, they had one. And their marriage seemed beyond repair. It seemed like there was no hope. But you know what? I know that we have a God who, with Him, all things are possible. And when I walked in, they were so excited to see me and they hugged me and they just thanked me because we went through a similar type of meeting in their life. And here they were years later with another child and they were involved in ministry at their church and God used that sin in their life to be able to be an encouragement and a comfort for those who are currently buying into the lie of the devil that there's somebody else out there better than the spouse that God has for us. And I share that with you because, you know what, God's love isn't selfish. It doesn't seek its own. It's willing to go beyond the comfort levels of our own life. God's love also is not provoked. It's not provoked. It it means, the word means to come alongside and to sharpen. God's love is not made sharp by others. I hear people say this all the time, but you don't know how mad he makes me. Wrong. Wrong. No one can make you or me mad or angry. It's a choice that we make. Now, we know we can push each other's buttons. If you've been around somebody long enough, Lynn and I have 30 years, we've known each other. Man, I'll tell you right now, I know every button. She knows every one. You know, and it was just like if we wanted to go there, boom, 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 boom. Woohoo! There it goes. There you go. And you know what's coming right after that. You just know it by then, you know? But you know what? God's love is not provoked. You know, when when Cain was angry with with his brother, you know what God said to him? Sin is crouching at your door, but you must master it. I will hurl you personally responsible for how you respond to your brother. See, we you know, we know. We know. Anyone who's been married long enough knows that your spouse can really get you. Yeah, amen. (laughs) Holy smokes. We're going to have to help your wife carry her crown around heaven. It's going to be so stinking big and heavy. The point is this. I mean, we've all been there and we've seen it. I see people get so angry. I mean, you see people screaming and yelling at umpires in a baseball game. That umpire makes me so mad. I'm going to jump over the fence with my son and we're going to beat him up. Are you people crazy? And, that, you know, you go to jail for stuff like that. You know, but I see it, man. I see it in the Little League. I see it in the Major Leagues. I see it everywhere in between how angry other people make me. And I tell you that that's an excuse for what you want to do because God's love is not provoked. Why? Because the fruit of the Spirit, love, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness. Hey, you know what? Self-control. Self-control. God's love is not unforgiving. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. Boys, I've just mentioned, you know, if you've been around somebody long enough, there's all kind of things we can do to hurt one another. But I'll say this, God's love is willing to forgive and forget. The most heinous, the most brutal, the most difficult situations in life, God's love poured out within us through His Holy Spirit gives you and me the capacity to forgive 
even what you considered at one time the most unforgivable thing that anyone could ever do to you. I hear people all the time saying, well, if that, my wife did that, or if my husband did that, or if this person did that, or if that person did that, man, you know what? I just, I, I do all kind of things to them. And I say, you know what? Then you don't really understand and know the grace and mercy of our God. Because I've learned this, to be kind and tenderhearted, forgiving one another just as God in Christ has forgiven us. I praise God. There's nothing that you and I will ever do that hasn't been forgiven at the cross. Yesterday, today, and forever, Jesus came to take away our sins for those who trusted in Him. God's love is not does not take into account a wrong suffer. And finally this, God's love, I, I put it this way, is not joyful. And what I mean by that is it doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with truth. You know what's so sad? I heard of a pastor not long ago who committed sexual sin and, and lost his ministry because of the choice that he made. And there were actually people who rejoiced that that man fell into sin. Good. Finally. He got what he deserved. I say, God, forgive us for that. Because that's not God's love. God's love never rejoices in unrighteousness, but rejoices in truth. God's love is broken. His heart is broken when we see others who are failing or falling in sin. But God's love rejoices when truth prevails. See, God's love is exciting. Man, when I walked into In-N-Out Burger and I saw that couple, man, all I could think about was a double-double. No, all I can think about, all I can think about was God's mercy and His love. All I could think about was God's redemption. All I can think about when, when we're faithless, He's faithful. And you know what? I've never thought only for the purpose of teaching how merciful and wonderful our God is, but I've never thought anything less of those people who are still our friends today because of a sin that occurred at a moment's time in their life. Because you know why? Because when we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far He removes our transgressions. And if God doesn't hold it against them, who are we to hold it against anyone let it go let it go and let God get all the praise and all the glory amen amen father thank you for this time to spend in your word we thank you for the truth of your love that you are patient and that you are kind God may we become people who exhibit those qualities in our own life where others will see the patience of our God Lord, I pray, as I said, that there are those who are here that don't know their relationship with you, that today would be the day as, God, you patiently hold up the light of the world, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for them to come to the cross and confess their sins, to repent and to turn to him and trust in him for the forgiveness of their sin, to trust in his death on the cross and the power of his resurrection. And you say that all who will do that will be saved. Repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. God, I thank you for your patience in my own life. And I just pray that the love that you've poured out in my life through your spirit, that same patience and kindness and all the things that we learned today, would it be exhibited so that as people see me, they'll come to Jesus. And we just thank you and praise you in his name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand